Chapter Twenty One of the Lonely Warrior by Claude C. Washburn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Stacy threw himself into work with a cold vigor that had in it nothing of fad or impulse. He did not find, as he had feared he might, that he had forgotten much. Everything came back to him at once. It had all been there, tucked away, neglected, within him. Neither did he chafe at the long regular hours he kept, nor feel them burdensome. In the old days he had perhaps been a little lazy. It had been hard for him, on arriving at the office, not to waste time, over a newspaper or a book catalogue, or anything that presented itself, before actually beginning his work. He had crept into work as a swimmer into cold water. Now there was no indolence about him. The instant he sat down at his desk, he turned his mind on the problems before him, and swiftly, intelligently, with intense concentration, he was soon accomplishing twice as much as any other man in the office. Indeed, less from a desire to be always busy, than from a kind of impatient thoroughness, dislike of slovenliness, he often spent hours on drawings that he might have turned over to draughtsmen. But, though he was extremely interested in his work, there was no such zest in it for him as he had once felt. Formerly he had romanticized it, had seen it all as something glowing and fine. Now it was only rarely that he experienced a little lifting sense of loveliness. This was when loveliness was really there to perceive. Mr. Parkins, who was something of a dreamer and himself inclined to waste time, was amazed. He had difficulty in supplying Stacy with enough to do. "'Look here,' he said, before Stacy had been back a month. "'What the devil's come over you? You're insatiable. You turn the work out as though it were arithmetic.' And he smiled in his uncertain reflective way. "'So it is, nine-tenths of it, as unemotional as arithmetic. Nothing but concentration needed most of the time. Restful, a mistake to use your soul when you don't have to.' The architect sat down on the edge of Stacy's desk. But, he suggested tentatively, you don't feel your old delight in it, or do you? When there's any occasion, said Stacy, there, for instance, and he pulled from a mass of papers a drawing of a detail, a wrought-iron balcony for a window. His eyes showed pleasure. Yes, by Jove, yes, that is good, Stacy, fine and sure at the same time. You're better than you used to be. For Henderson's house? Pity it's so sort of wasted. I mean, that it won't be appreciated. Oh, I don't feel that, Stacy replied. I feel that it's worthwhile enough to do anything good, even a molding for a room. I don't know why. Mr. Parkins looked surprised. Well, that's the right way to feel, of course. There's one thing certain, he added, getting up. You go into the firm the first of the month, and there's no favoritism about that, either. All right, said Stacy. Thanks. It's awfully good of you. And he went to work again. What Mr. Parkins had said was true. Stacy was a better architect than formerly. He was still affectionately interested in detail, because that interest had always been a part of him, and he knew enough now to understand calmly that nothing in one ever vanished, but he saw things in a larger, more solid way than once. Hammond, a younger man who was put under Stacy's guidance, questioned him about Stacy's preliminary sketch for a competition. 
It was of a great stone bridge that was to cross both branches of the river in the heart of the railway and warehouse section. "'Don't you think it may be a little, oh, well, grim, Carol?' asked Hammond, puzzled. "'Good Lord, man,' said Stacy. "'Think where it is. Mud, noise, confusion.' "'Well, that's just it. Oughtn't one to brighten the place up a little?' Stacy shook his head. "'I'm no damned beauty doctor. Just the facts, the right ones, in the best way.' Stacy played tennis hard for an hour every afternoon when he had finished work, for his strong body craved exercise, but his mind did not crave companionship. He mingled with only a few people, and most of these doubtless resented his manner as seeming hard and cold. In this they were wrong. Stacy was merely aloof. He was not superior, judging these people adversely. He was simply not letting them in, or himself into them. He had a feeling that this world of personal relationships was too rich. It was more like a sea. One might be swept away futilely on it. Toward those whom he did admit as companions, as they were sometimes the unlikeliest people, he was prodigal of interest. In his own different way, as altruistic as Mrs. Latimer. For his hasty luncheon, Stacy frequented a small cheap restaurant nearby. So also did Jack Edwards, who had been commander of the local American Legion post at the time Stacy had set it in a turmoil, but was so no longer, having been succeeded by someone less incongruously radical. The two fell into the habit of sitting down at table together for their fifteen-minute meal, and Stacy found himself at once attracted by the other man. Something in his firm-lined face, perhaps the odd expression of the brown eyes, hinted at a tortured, courageous personality. Stacy was friendly from the first. Edwards, on the other hand, was in the beginning obviously suspicious. But he thawed gradually, and the two became friends, united by some deep, almost unrecognized resemblance between them. Yet for a long time their talk was hardly more than casual comment on events. "'What do you do after lunch?' asked Stacy one June day, as they pushed back their chairs and rose. You must surely take more time off than this before going back to work. Oh, the other replied, I generally stroll around for twenty minutes, down to the river sometimes. Come up to my office and smoke a cigarette, won't you? There'll be no one there for half an hour yet. Don't care if I do. And the two men paid their checks and went out together, Stacy walking slowly, since Edwards limped badly on account of his wounded leg. In Stacy's room they sat down, with the littered desk between them, and smoked silently for some minutes. Stacy had his feet up against the side of an open drawer, but suddenly he swung them down and turned to face his friend. "'Edwards,' he demanded abruptly, "'what do you think of the war, anyway?' The muscles of the other man's rather stern face contracted slightly think of it? he returned. I don't think of it. I don't want to. Once in a while I dream. Stacy considered him with grim comprehension. From almost anyone else the remark would have sounded melodramatic. Edwards made it quite sincerely, with no thought of effect. When the raw black and white stuff of melodrama became truth, that was horrible. Stacy shivered, but after a little he returned to it. 
yes but i mean do you feel now that it was all bad all rotten selfish commercialism from the very beginning oh you've every right to i don't blame you and your people if you do but do you we've been tricked edwards replied bitterly duped and i'll take that point of view the one you ask me if i have publicly as long as i live it's the only way for me and mine to fight you and yours just as the way for your side to fight is to assert that the war was noble but it's not so simple no i don't think that no more do i cried stacy i hate the war it brought out everything rotten that lay hidden in men but some hundreds of thousands of young men did go into it nobly and to just that extent it was a decent war they're mostly dead now worse luck to the world and a good many of those that aren't are turned beastly by what they lived through but he paused a kind of dark light smouldered in his eyes there was courage said edwards in a deep voice my god there was courage not your romantic high adventure sort but the sort that could live through mud and intensive shelling and still push men on afterward to advance but oh christ the wasted lives in the argonne thrown away through sheer incompetence your people did that and even so said stacy somberly you didn't see the somme suddenly the dull glow in his eyes rose to a flame he struck the desk with his clenched fist the thing that gets me edwards he burst out is these beastly cheap editors of weeklies sitting up and writing pertly about the war as if it had been all a game of grab nothing decent damn them petty complacent asses what do they know about it what do they know about physical courage or any other kind have they suffered have they fought for ideals and been given dung the intellectuals they call themselves an honest protester like debs all right i'll respect him but these vulgar underbred egotists faw the only ones i hate as much are the others who sit up and write about how everything was first-rate bully war noble good clearly coming out of it he ceased panting with rage don't hate so carol said edward slowly where's the good stacy drew his hand across his forehead you're right he returned it's idiotic i thought i'd learned better and he added laughing shortly fancy wasting emotion on that tribe he felt dizzy and faintly nauseated as though poisoned and he was rather ashamed it was a flash out of an earlier side of him for stacy was like a fabric that was being woven together steadily out of various strands but here and there the woof was faulty the pattern was broken threads stuck out loosely but moments of hate such as this were rare generally he was cool enough cooler and perhaps more tolerant than edwards who always in general talk showed himself bitterly conscious of the class struggle edwards came up to the office for a few minutes after luncheon nearly every day now and as long as the two men talked personally or of concrete subjects he forgot his obsession or rather seemed almost irately unable to apply it in any way to stacy but at the least broadening of the conversation it emerged a sullen thing come out to dinner with us some evening will you tonight if you like 
Stacy suggested once. No, said Edwards shortly. Stacy laughed. Why not? Bound to have no dealings with the devil or any of his allies? Better come. You'd like my father. You'd fight with him, but you'd like him. I don't want to, said Edwards. I don't want to like any of your crew. It's their likableness that I resent. Of course they're likable. Why shouldn't they be? They've leisure and all the appurtenances essential to becoming so. We've got to fight them, you, as class against class. I see. Sentiment must be kept out. No fraternizing in the trenches. Edwards flushed. You're too rotten clever, Carol, he replied resentfully. It's easy for you to make me appear in the wrong. No, said Stacy. I simply fancy you're wrong to think in classes. They're abstractions. If everybody would drop them, men could meet as men. Oh, exclaimed Edwards, clearly out of patience. It's all very well for you to sit there and talk. You can afford to be sweetly reasonable. You're fixed, safe. You've everything. Of course you can talk unselfishly. You can even talk like a revolutionary. You know damned well there isn't going to be any revolution. Not yet. Well, as for that, said Stacy mildly, I'll admit that I live in a luxurious house with all sorts of comforts. Pleasant enough in their way. Only how much do they amount to? I'm not essentially soft. I go inhabiting the place because it's there, because I haven't any particular social theories. I don't, for instance, see what good my not living there would do anyone. Because of my father, and because of Catherine Blair, my friend Phil's widow, and her boys. Edward's face was crimson. I didn't mean what I said, Carol, he blurted out. I know well enough that. Oh, well, I apologize. Shucks, said Stacy. That's all right. It's a good thing to look into one's own existence now and then. For the rest, I dare say that I'm paid more than I'm worth for my work here. I can't tell, and I don't intend to waste much time worrying about it. I probably earn more than a skilled mechanic like you, and that's wrong. I earn less than a broker, and that's wrong. I can, because of my aptitude and a long training, build decent houses. How's anyone to know what my exact remuneration should be? Under this system, the Lord God himself couldn't decide. That's what I mean, under this system. Stacy was engrossed with the plans for the bridge one afternoon, when the office boy poked his head in at the door. Lady to see you, Mr. Carroll, he announced. All right, said Stacy mechanically, not taking it in. So when a moment later he looked up to see Irene Loeffler standing opposite him, he fairly gaped with surprise. But he rose quickly and went around the desk to her. How are you? he said. I didn't hear you come in. Sit down, do. It's a long time since I've seen you. She shook hands, dropped his hand quickly, then flung herself into a chair. She was the same abrupt, disconcerting person as ever. Just now she was a trifle flushed with embarrassment. Stacy sat down near her, but not too near, and considered her with a polite external gravity. Inwardly he was amused by the recollection of her advances, somewhat remorseful at having treated her so roughly, and just a little apprehensive. "'Wanted to see you, Mr. Carroll,' Irene began gruffly. And this seemed a good place. 
Sorry to disturb you, though. But there was a faint tremor in her voice. Her affectation of mannishness made her appear only the more feminine, Stacy thought. In an odd way, she was attractive. Not a bit of it. I'm glad to see you, he replied and waited. Irene swallowed once or twice. Well, she said, trying again for a beginning, I wanted to tell you something. I suppose you've got a rotten opinion of me, haven't you? she demanded, staring at him, a sulky childish look about her mouth. Stacy cordially disclaimed having anything of the sort. Well, you'd have a right to, I guess. Anyway, what I wanted to tell you was that I've come to my senses. You haven't anything to fear from me any more. Stacy choked at this and kept his face straight with difficulty. And I'm engaged to be married to Paul Hemingway. Know him? Fine, said Stacy, laughing in spite of his best efforts. Awfully good fellow. I think you've chosen well. I'll send you a wedding present. And he held out his hand. But she did not take it. Instead, she twisted her handkerchief nervously around her fingers. Stacy had never seen anyone with so little repose. Do you think, she demanded abruptly, that it's all right for me to marry him? He stared at her. Why, what do you mean? he asked, completely lost. Well, I mean, she said sullenly, her lower lip quivering like that of a child about to cry. I mean, after what I said to you. Stacy understood now and was touched. Why, you silly child, he exclaimed. I never heard anything so absurd. If that's the worst thing you ever did, you have the purest past in the world. She brightened, tears of relief standing in her eyes. But anyway, I must tell Paul about it, mustn't I? No, Stacy almost shouted, overcome with a mixture of amazement and admiration. There's nothing to tell. Irene wiped her eyes, in obvious resentment at the need. All right, then, she said. Thanks. And now she shook hands. Then she looked at Stacy with a tremulous smile. You've got a lot of charm, she announced. But at this he retreated hastily behind his desk, and she departed, laughing. Stacy thought often of Marion, but he did not see her until July. He had left the office late one afternoon, and was walking briskly along the boulevard on the way to the tennis courts, when she called to him from her open car. It drew up at the curb beside him, and Marion reached out her hand to him gracefully. She was coming from a tea, she said, and she was wearing a lacy dress of blue and silver, and a drooping picture hat, white and transparent, that cast soft shadow over her face without really obscuring it. Against the deep cushions of the tonneau, she looked small, elegant, and sophisticated. It occurred to Stacy that it was nonsense for him to be concerned about her. Their meeting must have appeared to an outsider like one of those salon pictures of an encounter in the Bois de Boulogne. "'You're looking very well, Stacy,' she said gaily, "'but you don't deserve to have me say so. Have you been back for two months without coming near me? It's not respectful.' Stacy laughed. What a funny word! Well, I will come. Love to. Marion's arm hung limply along the edge of the car. She drummed idly with her hand against the polished enamel. And the gesture seemed to sum her up. Perfection, graceful ennui, and all. 
Oh, she said, you'll just say you'll come, and that will be the end of it unless I pin you down. So I will. Come, let's see. Come on Monday at five and have tea with me. All right, thanks. I'll be coming straight from the office, so I'll look dingy, probably. Hope you won't mind. Gracious, no, she replied, apparently without malice, and laughing rather delightfully. It's not your clothes I care about seeing. I've got clothes. Till Monday, then. She touched the chauffeur's back lightly with the tip of her slender, blue and white parasol, and the car moved away smoothly. He gazed after her for a moment, and again he dubbed himself a fussy fool. He forgot that one's thought of a person is direct, without veils, so that in an actual encounter, after a long separation, one is aware chiefly of the veils. But it was only his father and Catherine whom Stacy saw constantly. He spent nearly all his evenings at home. Sometimes he would read, or would merely look on while Catherine and Mr. Carroll played cards. And he was amused at this, for he did not think that Catherine liked cards really. When he thought she had endured enough, he would insist on playing in her stead, declaring that she was usurping his place in the home. Or again, they would all three merely sit and talk. But this made Mr. Carroll restless. He demanded, Stacy could see, some direct problem, even if a small one, to occupy his mind. He could talk while he played cards, but talk was for him no end in itself. It was a pleasant accompaniment to something else that led somewhere. On other evenings, when Mr. Carroll must speak at a banquet, or welcome some visiting potentate of the Republican Party, Mr. Harding was nominated by now, and Mr. Carroll, at first disappointed, soon perceived that the choice was a wise one. Stacy would sit with Catherine, or, more often, walk with her in the garden. He felt that he did not know Catherine at all, and he was aware that this was partly his fault. He had always thought of her as Phil's wife, and she still evoked for him the memory of Phil rather than any clear image of her own. Yet, though he could not have said what she was like, he admired her more than anyone else he knew. It was no good to ask himself why. He could say vaguely that she was clear and cool as deep water, that she had a profound truthfulness, that there was a quality of fact in her. What did all that mean? Only once had her personality touched his in a flash. On that afternoon, when she had pleaded with him, but commandingly almost, if gently, not to go to Marion. And he had cut her with cruel words because he had yielded. He bit his lip in shame at the thought. And she was so shy, so immensely reserved. She was not really at her ease with him, he saw, except when the boys were present or his father. She would talk about herself when Stacy questioned her, as though she were talking of someone else. What do you do with your day, Catherine? he asked once. I mean, when the boys are away at school. This seemed to startle her, rather. I, I write, or try to, regularly, Stacy, she replied after a moment. They were walking in the garden, and he paused suddenly to stare at her. You mean, things to publish? he cried, amazed. Yes, does it seem incredible? I suppose it does, she returned simply. No, no, I don't mean that. I should think you probably had more to say than anyone else I know, only—pardon me, Catherine—oh, well, let's be frank. 
Expression isn't your fort. She laughed shyly at this. It's easier when you write, she said. Yes, of course, it must be. What kind of things? Little articles, she replied haltingly. Mostly for English papers. It's hard to get them accepted here. One or two places do, sometimes. You'll let me see them, please. Never, she exclaimed, horrified. And I don't sign my own name, so it's useless to look. You're exasperating, Catherine, he cried, and meant it. Then he laughed suddenly. I'll bet they're radical, oh, radical. Tell me, Catherine, he added maliciously, when you've gone upstairs after my father has talked about Bolshevism at some length, do you sit down then and write your subversive stuff? A double life, that's what you're leading. She flushed at this, and would say no more. Yet Stacy's persistent attempt to get at Catherine was not the result of mere curiosity, even the curiosity of affection. At heart he felt vaguely that she was immensely lonely in her isolation, in great need of sharing her grief for Phil with someone else. He would have her make such a friend of him as Phil had made him. End of chapter 21